Something that I think is, uh, is true that we can all identify is, with is that we live in a world where it's easy to be distracted all the time. Have you noticed that? I mean, it's easy. We have technology, all kinds of things that distract us. It's easy to hang out with friends and then not actually talk to the person in the room, right? Just like digital devices. Um, it's easy to have family dinner and never actually interact with your family. In fact, there's some interesting st statistics. They're a couple of years old now, but uh, I, I think they haven't probably gotten any better. Uh, U.S. teens spend an average of more than seven hours per day on screen entertainment, and tweens uh, spend nearly five hours a day. That doesn't include school and homework. That's significant, isn't it? And you know, some of the implications, there's a book that was written a few years back called iGen that's looking at the generation coming up, some of you uh, folks that are in your teens or, or early 20s here. And what they found is actually um, in this book, iGene, is that teens who spend more time on screen activities are more likely to be unhappy. And they, they said there's not a single exception. All screen activities are linked to less happiness. Now, before the adults are like jabbing your, your kids, you know, and in the ribs in, in that, um, before you start getting down on the kids. Adults, uh, smartphone usage, just smartphones. A, a, a survey of a couple thousand people a couple years ago said that the average American spends 20 hours per week on just their smartphone. Now listen, because you haven't done the math, that adds up to 45 days a year. 45 days of your year on your phone. Now, let's just have a moment of honesty. How many in the room are willing to confess and say, yeah, that sounds about right? Yeah. Now, here's the implication for adults. Also, adults, um, they found are less happy. In fact, the more people use Facebook, the lower their mental health and life satisfaction. But when they go and interact with their friends in person, actually, their uh, mental health and life satisfaction actually improves. Um, another implication of this is just the fact that we're so distracted. And researchers have found that it's not just the amount of time we spend on some of these smart devices. It's a problem called context switching, which is where every five minutes your phone dings or goes off. Um, I turn most of those dings off on my phone, um, just because I'm obsessive compulsive, right? I already check it. Like, in fact, they did a they did a, a study. Um, they found basically after people have been using smartphones for three years, because this stuff it like trains your brain. Um, people are off their phone at most for ten minutes during waking hours. Like, ten minutes don't go by without checking your phone. Again, anybody want to say, yeah, that sounds about right? Yeah. And, and what happens is this really affects our focus. The context switching, it kills um, productivity. How many of you experienced when uh, the ding goes off and you go to reply to one text or Facebook message or something, and uh, 20 minutes later, you're like, whoa, what happened, right? Cat video. And just, I mean, minutes, yeah, an hour goes by. And what happens is even these, like, brief mental blocks when you switch context, um, they can cost about 40% of your productive time. And this is actually a behavior that's driven and contributes to anxiety in our lives. 
Um, it's an anxiety-driven um, behavior. And they found that it's actually, um, some people call this uh, phenomenon nomophobia, which is technological dependency. But it's also known as the fear of missing out, FOMO. Like, you, you, you want to be aware of what's going on in your friend's life and what's going on in, in the world, and it's this fear of missing out, of not being up to date. Now, if all these kind of stats sound a little familiar, it's because we did a two-week series on it, if you've been with us for a while. In, uh, it, it actually concluded on March 7 and 8, 2020, and we encouraged you to be better at managing technology um, for the sake of your family and your relationship with God. And then the next week, <laughs> it's like the only way you can come to church is online. Come back online. Forget everything we said the last two weeks. <laughs> now, all these stats, like I said, they're a couple years old, but I don't think they've improved at all. In fact, I'm willing to guess if we went around the room, most of us would say, like, the distractedness and the anxiety-driven behavior and all these things in our life over the last year and a half has just ramped up, right? I'm on Twitter, like, obsessively, what's happening? Some of you um, identify with that. And, and here's the thing, like, I'm picking on technology a little bit because it kind of underlies a bigger problem in our hearts and in our lives, and that is just the distraction of life, the things that distract us. You know, distractions allow us to have proximity to our family and yet not be present with our family. Have you noticed that? Uh, technology, just the, the distractions of life allow us proximity to our friends without really knowing our friends. Some of you have experienced that, where you have broad numbers of people you interact with, but if you're honest, so many of them, there's no depth of relationship there, right? Um, these distractions have allowed us to have proximity to church without real community. I mean, the, the online thing is a blessing, and it also um, allows a proximity to church without actually having community, unless you're very intentional about it, right? And distractions allow just this constant activity in our life, which I think really does damage to our souls and really shifts us off course of the things that matter the most when it comes to our relationship with God and our relationship with others. If you have your Bibles, uh, why don't you turn to John chapter 2, verse 11, and we're going we're gonna to pick up where we left off last week, and we're gonna, today we're going to see this dramatic example of Jesus confronting things that distract and pointing us to the deeper things that God is doing and God means for us to discover and meant for the people of Israel to discover in their day. And so John chapter 2, verse 11 Right after this incredible miracle, um, turning the, the water into wine, it says this, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mothers and brothers and his disciples. There they stayed a few days. 
Now, it's interesting because John actually calls, he's very careful throughout his whole um, book of John, the, the account of Jesus' life that he writes, to refer to these miraculous things that Jesus is doing as signs. And he does that very specifically because he doesn't want us to get focused in on the actual thing itself. It, it's a sign that's pointing to something deeper. It's pointing to a deeper truth. Um, let me illustrate it this way. How many uh, like creepy movies in the room? Anybody? Yeah, we got, there's always those, you're weird. I don't know. I don't get it. I can't watch them. They creep me out, right? I still, I still remember watching The Thing when I was like a teenager, and it still gives me creep, like EBGBs. Does anybody remember that? Creepy movie, yeah. Um, so anyway, how about, do you remember um, Signs by M. Night Shyamalan? You guys remember that? Mel Gibson, before he had like a big gray beard, you know? Mel Gibson and uh, Joaquin Phoenix play in this movie. And it, it was interesting. So if you remember this, uh, Mel Gibson is a, uh, plays an Episcopal priest whose wife was killed in a tragic accident, and he, he loses his faith over it. And then in the midst of all these weird like things, his wife gives him these weird cryptic sort of last words that he, he just remembers and has flashbacks to throughout this, this whole movie. And then, you know, the plot is aliens are invading the earth and it's really creepy. And there's an alien locked in the closet and, you know, sticking his fingers out underneath and gets his fingers chopped off. And ultimately, like, uh, the alien like sprays this poison gas into his kid's face, but his kid has this asthma attack so he doesn't inhale the poison gas, and then there's just water everywhere. Aliens are allergic to water. And then he remembers his wife's words as this alien is like has his son, and he tells his little brother, who's a failed minor league baseball player, like, swing away, because that was his wife's last words. And he grabs this bat that happens to be on the wall and swings away and kills the alien. And the aliens don't invade the Earth. And anyway... Now, in the midst of all the distractions of the aliens, actually what M. Night Shyamalan is doing is he's illustrating a deeper point. These signs are pointing to something deeper, that there really is a higher power at work. And that's actually the conclusion after all these like crazy things. And he looks around and he goes, wow, I, th I think this was all meant to be in a, in a, in a sense. And it actually brings him back to faith because the signs were just pointing to something deeper. And that's kind of like how John uses signs in the book of John. They're, they're there, but they're meant to point us to something deeper. And so the sign of the water into wine that we talked about last week, there's six uh, water pots. There's six stone jars. It's very significant. John tells us the number. It, it's, it's a symbol of something deeper because six represents one less than seven. Not quite perfection. Not quite the Sabbath. Not quite rest. It's the sign of, of humankind. And there's six jars that would be used for purification rites, the Jewish religious purification ceremonies. And Jesus comes and he turns, he takes those six pots and fills them to the brim and turns the water into wine. And it's a symbol of something much deeper that's going in, that the old system of purification is gone. It's done. You can't go back to water. The new is here. Jesus is the better wine. It's not that the old wine was, was bad. 
Not that the old system was bad. It just was meant to be pointing to the real thing, the ultimate thing, and that was Jesus. Now is the new time of God's action among his people. It's a sign of something deeper going on. This is how Middle Eastern people thought. We don't really think this way, but if you remember um, 20 years ago when, when terrorists flew the, uh, the, the planes into the tower in the Pentagon, what was that all about? It was about the symbols. There was deep symbolism, symbolism of the financial system and military might. There were symbols going on. And this is exactly what John is pointing us to. Is there something deeper going on in these accounts than just what we see on the surface? And so the next section actually flows directly out of this first of the signs that Jesus does as he turns the water into wine. They're, they're connected. In fact, um, in the other three accounts of Jesus' life, the synoptic gospels, they, this same event appears, but it happens right at the end of Jesus' ministry. And a lot of scholars, um, some scholars believe there were two events, and there's some good arguments for that. And other scholars um, believe that basically what John does is he pulls this event, accurate historical event, and places it where he does in this account in order uh, to make a theological point to tie these two events together. And which one's right? I, I don't know. We, we have a saying around here, we're lifelong learners, which means we don't think we have everything figured out. And there's, when it comes to things that we would consider non-essentials of faith or salvation, there's many things we hold in tension. Um, in fact, our, our saying around that is smarter people than us have been arguing about these things for thousands of years. So when it comes to maybe things, some, some aspects of end times theology or different things, it's like, well... Smarter people than us have been arguing about this. I think we're all going to spend eternity together, so we should be able to fellowship and love each other now, right? So anyway, um, so the next section flows right out of this sign. Verse 13, it says this. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So the Passover, this is so significant because this happens. Jesus picks this time to do this sign, to do this symbol that he's about ready to do. Uh, Passover, if you're with us when we preach through the book of Exodus, is, is uh, perhaps the most significant event in Jewish history. When, when they were rescued, when um, God says, I want to have relationship with you, I want to rescue you, save you, deliver you, you haven't done anything for me yet. But if you just paint the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of your house and you pass under that, you'll be saved, rescued from the judgment that's coming on Egypt. So Passover, they have been celebrating it every year for 1,500 years. In fact, Passover, during the week of Passover, pilgrims would come from all over, really, the world because Jews have been spread out all over the world, but especially from all over um, it, Israel, kind of Judea and uh, and Israel, that whole region, Samaria, they'd come in to Jerusalem, and the city would, would swell during this time from about 40,000 people to over 250,000 people, around 200, 250,000 people. It would be kind of like uh, Loma during Country Jam without all the drunk cowboys. So. <laughs> but just people everywhere, packed everywhere. And that's when Jesus chooses to come. That, this is the moment that he chooses to do this dramatic, confrontational, scandalous thing. 
And so in, in verse 14, it places him where he's at during Passover. It says, in the temple courts. Before we go on to the rest of that verse, I just want to say um, what you have to understand about the temple, because this is so significant. Um, see, the temple was destroyed in 587 B.C. on a day called the, the 9th of Av. And it was a, a date of great tragedy. But then when God brought the people back from exile, they rebuilt the temple. But it wasn't nearly as amazing as it was under Solomon. In fact, the old timers, the ones that had been alive, that had remembered 70 years before or more than that, seeing the old temple wept when they dedicated the new temple. And so Herod comes along, Herod the Great. And Rome had installed him as sort of the puppet king over, um, over uh, Israel at that point. And uh, he was called the great, not because he was a great man. He was an awful man, but because he was a great builder. And they really, he was despised. And so he came up with a building plan that he thought would get people to like him. And he, had, uh, he, he began to transform the temple from what it had been to this amazing structure trying to restore the glory and even go beyond what Solomon did. He hired a total of 18,000 men to work full time on it for 80 years. It was spectacular. In fact, when Jesus, you know, brings his disciples who were mostly from Galilee, simple fishermen, and they came and they were standing in front of it, they're just mind blown. They're like, wow, look at this spectacular like this is so awesome and Jesus says you see these stones this whole thing's going to be destroyed and it blew their minds they couldn't believe it and then in one of the most amazing fulfillments short-term fulfillments of prophecy in 70 AD Titus came in who also he was blown away by the awe and the splendor of the temple and tried to get his men to save it but they were so angry by the time they overtook Jerusalem that they tore the whole thing apart on the 9th of Av, the exact same day that the Babylon had destroyed it in uh, 587 BC. Just this like amazing, miraculous fulfillment of prophecy. And so they're in the temple. And the temple was not just a significant place of splendor. The temple was the center of religious and national identity. It, they saw, viewed the temple as the place where heaven and earth would meet. It was the place of God's special dwelling. In fact, there was this thing in Ezekiel where the glory of God um, left the temple and in a sense had never returned in the same way. And they were waiting for that. They were anticipating that in Jesus then comes, and they don't know it, but the glory of God enters the temple again. One scholar puts it this way. He says, the temple was the beating heart of Judaism. It wasn't just, as it were, a church on a street corner. It was the center of worship, of music, of politics, and society, of national celebration and mourning. This is a place they recorded debts. It was the place where they sacrificed. It was the place that was the center of life. It defined their nation. And so in, in so many ways, in reality, what Jesus is about ready to do was like throwing a bomb into the culture. It would have, it would have been so stark and so sh shocking Verse 14, it goes on. It says, in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. 
So you'd have a special currency that was the accepted temple currency, and you'd have to exchange your money so you could give your offering or your temple tax in the special currency, and there were money changers over here. And then pilgrims that had come from various corners of the kingdom and various corners of the world uh, didn't come carrying, you know, with their sheep or their... Or their um, you know, sacrificial animals, they're doves. So there was like basically what you have in the middle of the temple courts that was supposed to be a place of prayer and of seeking God and of repenting and of turning your heart towards God. It's basically a Middle Eastern market. And it's just crazy. It's why it's noisy. Bah, you know, all these noises everywhere and haggling, you know, I'll give you, give me 20 for that. No, no, no. Here, I'll give you 10 for that. All that like commotion is going on everywhere in the midst of this. Anybody ever been to a developing nation, to a market? Yeah, I remember being in Thailand when I was younger, younger and uh, haggling. I got really good at it, actually. In fact, I'm not quite sure how I feel about it ethically because I'd have a money belt and I'd want like this pair of jeans, and I'd be like, oh, I'll give you 10 bucks for it. And I'd pull out my pockets and be like, that's all I have, right? I should probably go back and repent for that. I don't know. But I scored some really good deals. And this is the, this is the environment that Jesus finds as he walks in to the temple. It has become a noisy place of commotion. It's just crazy. And so Jesus, it says in verse 15, so he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market Can you imagine this scene? Now, it's symbolic. It's not just the act itself. It's the deeper symbolism, like we said, that's going on. And we'll get to that in a, in, in a second. But as Jesus drives these, these animals out, first of all, he comes in and he sees this whole scene going on and he just starts making a whip. Some people think he braids it out of like kind of cords, straw cords or something, because it was illegal in the temple to have a weapon, and a whip was considered a weapon. So he's there, and he's braiding this thing. That's, I mean, he's, he's thinking about this. He walks in, he sees this, he's, and he just starts. I don't know how long does it take. I don't know. He's just stewing over here in the corner because he's thinking about what he's about ready to do. And then he starts driving the animals out and flipping over tables. Money's flying everywhere. Has anybody, I uh, worked on a friend's ranch a little bit as a young teenager. We did cattle drives. And you know, like when you're, when you're driving cattle, unless you're, you're really good at it, um, they go everywhere. And you're chasing them around and there's poop flying. And you know, it's like, it's kind of crazy. And it says he drives, drives them actually out of the gates. And so there's just all this chaos everywhere. There's people everywhere. There's money flying. Jesus is chasing these animals out. He's, he's, he's saying, get out of here to the money changers. Get out of here. And they're like, whoa, what's going on? Who is this crazy guy? On cable news that night, it was re reported as an insurrection. It was like the big deal event, right? I mean, think about that. 
just how wild that scene must have been. And you don't get like Jesus hurting people. I mean, it's not like physical violence. It's a symbolic act that he's doing as he chases animals out and they come pouring out of the gates and people are like jumping out of the way. I mean, this would have been shocking, scandalous for a few different reasons. Number one, he's kind of coming against the financial system, the power structure. He's the little guy taking on the big, powerful Sanhedrin that controls. They were very, very wealthy. The whole temple system had created great wealth for those in charge. They really liked their position of power. And Jesus is coming, and he's threatening that. He's threatening commerce. He's threatening all these different things. It's, it's an affront to these guys. He's, he's, and it's interesting because they don't argue back and, and critique his opinion of the whole deal. Later, they're going to ask him, who gave you the authority to do this? It's a prophetic act, and deep in their hearts, they know all this is true, what he's saying. They know his judgment is correct because it is. The whole thing has gotten corrupt. It's not that Jesus was against commerce or finance. That, that's not the point. Don't get that. This isn't some like, you know, Jesus was against business. No. It's, it's what was happening in the way that the system that was meant to draw people's hearts toward God, draw people's hearts towards worshiping him, um, worshiping in reverence and awe and having brokenness towards sin and all those things. It was just, they had brought it into the wrong place and it was completely distracting now. Distracting against the heart of the mission. I see three kind of different applications of this. You know, I mean, there's the symbolism itself, which we're going to talk about in a minute. But there's three things I think we can draw out of this and, and ask ourselves about our lives today when it comes to our relationship with God. First one is just general distractions, right? Like we started out talking about. And technology is just one of those distractions, isn't it, sometimes? Sometimes it's just the volume of activities we're involved in. It's, you know, running kids every different direction. It's just, you know, we didn't say no in this area. It's that constant thing of something new. And before we know it, our life is just so distracted and busy that there's never any place for us to think about the kingdom of God, for us to pause, for us to pray. It's just not built into life, right? Life is from ding, ding, the phone starts going off at 6.30, and you're on it, and you're replying to work emails, and you're doing all this stuff, or you're checking social media, and there's never a rest. There's never a pause. There's never a, oh, God, what is this day about? What's happening in your kingdom that you want me to be aware of? What's happening in my heart and my life that I need to pay attention to? What's happening in my family's hearts? And it's so easy just to, to, to be totally distracted away from the things that if we went around and you're a follower of Jesus, you would readily say these things matter the most, right? These are the most important things. It's so easy to lose sight of that. You know, uh, there's a book by C.S. Lewis called Screwtape Letters. And it's really a, a cool book. Um, basically, it's kind of a, a made-up story, but, but there's so much truth in it because it, it chronicles this like junior demon trying to, uh, he's assigned to attack this one person like in their mind and different things, right? And then um, a sort of supervisor and he's writing and asking um, his supervisor for, for um, advice basically 
on how to, how to get to this guy. And, and the supervisor says, hey, um, you know, it's not like you're going to jump out and scare him like, you know, like horns. And the devil doesn't do that, right? The enemy's primary strategy, and this is what, you know, this supervisor says, if actually cloak yourself. Just make him think you're not there. Make him think there's no spiritual realm at all. And then you just quietly whisper lies. You quietly keep them distracted. You quietly draw their heart away. And I think so many times that's the way the enemy works in our lives. It's just simply through distracting us so that our lives are ineffective for Jesus. Because we're so consumed by everything else. That it just crowds out any place for focusing on Jesus and the kingdom of God in our lives. Our lives become ineffective for God. Then you have the, the distraction of commerce here. And again, it's not like an argument against business. That's not the argument Jesus is making. It's that it's, a, it's become a distraction. It's become an idol. It's become a thing that's in the wrong place. And anything that, that gets into the center of our heart ahead of God is an idol it becomes something that is in a wrong place, something that brings separation and breaks relationship with God. And, and for so many, um, the pursuit of money, building our whole lives around money, um, our relationship with our stuff and our money and how it's so easy for it all to become about ourselves and all to become about our ability to upgrade and move on and have the bigger thing and the better thing and the bigger account and all those things. And, and generosity goes out the window and a heart for the kingdom goes out the window. This is why Jesus, I think, he says, hey, you cannot serve God and money. Doesn't work. One of them is going to take the primary place in your heart. This is why living a lifestyle of generosity, I think, is so important. Both as a discipline and as a spontaneous thing. It's so important. Because it, it helps recenter our heart and our life on what really matters. And the abundance and the grace of God that's worked out in our lives, the overflow of which we give from and are generous from. Our tendencies is to make our financial lives all about ourselves as an attitude of the heart. Instead of saying, God, why have you provided for me and blessed me in this way? And so commerce and, and relationship with, with finance. And the other thing I think that's interesting is, is just uh, the relationship of um, Politics. Actually, in Mark chapter 11, we see the same event. And here's the words Jesus used. It says, Mark eleven seventeen. as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And this little word robbers, it literally means um, like brigands. It's revolutionaries. In fact, when the temple is destroyed in 70 AD, it's largely because the zealot revolutionaries um, used it as their fortress from which to rebel against Rome. And I think um, just the way that everything in life and our culture has become political. Have you noticed that? Everything, right? And everything has become so divisive and so polarized. Now, 
politics, I think, can easily become a distraction and take center place in front of the gospel. Now, it doesn't mean, you, you know, being active. I firmly believe in, in being active and being involved and working for the good of culture and society and, and being an active part, right? But it's easy if we're not careful to let that become center place instead of the kingdom of God and working for the purposes of God in our life. Whatever the cause is, it's easy for that to become a primary focus where Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. That our first desire should be drawing people towards Jesus. Sharing the gospel. Distractions, they come in all different forms. Verse 17, his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Remember, he makes a whip of cords. And this is quoting one of the Psalms, a messianic prophecy. Zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus had a zeal. He had an intensity. I don't think he was sitting there making the whip of cords saying, well, I wonder how this is going to influence um, my influence on social media. I wonder how this is going to affect these people's opinion of me. It's not bad to consider those things, right? But so many times, actually, the fear of man keeps us from doing what we really, truly believe is the thing God's calling us to do, the right thing. Especially in a culture where we live in today where um, cancel culture is so prevalent. Just, you know, one thing, right? Jesus has a zeal and intensity about God's kingdom about speaking up, about sharing, um, about be, you know, being who God's called him to be. And, and also he has a zeal and intensity about driving out the sin and the corruption in his father's house. Do you have any zeal and any intensity about driving out sin in your life? I mean, really, if you read the words of Jesus, he said some pretty intense things, Right? If your hand, you know, if it's stealing, you're, you're struggling and you're tempted, cut off your hand. Now, it's a metaphor. If, if lust is, is the struggle, pluck out your eye. You're like, whoa, Jesus, calm down. They're both metaphors, right? But what is the point? The point is to have an intensity and a zeal about following Jesus and about getting rid of the things in our lives that distract us from him, that distract us from the things of his kingdom. Man, I think that's something we've lost in the modern-day church, by and large. Paul says this in Corinthians when he's talking about, like, hey, I don't just sort of, I'm not just loosey-goosey, 
you know, taking it easy. He says, no, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. As he's talking about living his life to earn the crown that God, to hear well done, essentially, good and faithful servant, right? Like, I'm serious about following Jesus. And no, we don't do that in our own strength. And yes, we, we need to rely on the Holy Spirit. And it's a process. It just doesn't happen just overnight. It's a process. And usually it's difficult to defeat sin in your life. It's a process of sanctification and saying, I'm going to cooperate with the Holy Spirit and not resist. And we stumble. And it's a process of standing back up and receiving grace and forgiveness from God and running toward him instead of away from him, right? But what you see modeled in Jesus is an intensity, intensity. I love there's a scene um, in uh, Narnia. Do anybody remember The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, that book? Loved those books growing up. Great books. And there's this scene where um, Susan, one of, the, one of the girls, is talking about Aslan. She's learning about Aslan and um, the beaver family. And this is all weird unless you know the story, right? There's talking animals, kids' books um, that are very profound. Um, you should read them if you haven't. So he's going to meet Aslan, which is a picture and represents Jesus in, in the story. And Susan's like, he's a lion? It's kind of scary to her. He, he, she asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. And I can't do a British accent, otherwise I would... And Mr. Beaver says, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. That's so beautiful. And here's something when it comes to following Jesus that I think um, oftentimes we lose in our modern culture that's all about safety. Has anybody noticed over the last couple of years we're kind of obsessed with safety? Yeah. It's like the global obsession about, now I know, I mean, it goes way beyond the last couple of years. But here's the point, is I think the followers of Jesus, I think the followers of Jesus, um, the disciples, you know, all of them except for, for John, all the early apostles would go on to die martyrs' deaths. They would give, literally give their lives for Jesus. I think their lives probably would have been a lot longer and more comfortable and easy had they never met Jesus and chosen to follow him. See, following Jesus was never meant to be safe other than the best place you can be is in the center of his will, right? It was never meant to be safe the way we think of safety as a comfortable life. An easy life. But it's meant to be good. Meaning it's the most fulfilling way and eternally the most productive and rewarding way you can live your life. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. And to us, like that's kind of a, oh yeah, a cute face. That wasn't a cute phrase to them. They'd walked by crucifixions. That would have been a repulsive phrase to them. But there's a sense of an intensity in following Jesus and a commitment that I think in so many ways 
we've shied away from today. Verse 18, the Jews then responded to him, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Again, they don't, they don't push back and go, no, you're wrong. They're convicted, but they're pushing back. Like, who do you think you are? Coming in here and disrupting all this and confronting our power and our money and everything we have going, who do you think you are? And Jesus answers them, and it's this cryptic answer. There's deep symbolism in what he's about ready to speak and in the act that he just did. He says this, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Now, that's cool, because John starts chapter 2 by, by letting us know that the, the water to wine says on the third day. He's hinting at something. And then here. Jesus says, I'll destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Three days. And they replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it in three days? They just laugh at him. Verse 21, but, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus is speaking on a whole different plane. Like, you're, you're distracted. You're focused on right here, right now, and all these things. And I'm speaking on a whole different level here, on a deeper level, on an eternal level. The temple he'd spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. And as Jesus does this, this crazy, scandalous act, drives the people out of the temple, the heart of what he's doing is pointing. It's a sign pointing to something deeper that's coming. And, and we have the rites of purification, the six jars, that now that's done. The new wine is here. The better thing is here. True life, grace is better than law. It's here. The whole thing wasn't bad. It was grace too. But, but Jesus, the new covenant is better than the old. And Jesus is getting to this point of, hey, guess what? With me here, literally, I, the, Jesus walked around doing all kinds of things that they had a system for in the temple. All sorts of strange things. Remember, he would say to people, your sins are forgiven. And they, they would be like, what? Only God can do that. In fact, they, they had a system for that at the temple. Jesus walked around acting like a living, breathing, walking temple. And that's the point. Remember what we, we talked about three weeks ago, if you were here in John 1, that he tells Nathaniel, hey, guess what? Yeah, you saw me. I saw you under the tree, and that was cool, and you believe, but you're going to see greater things. And, and he refers to Jacob's ladder, the stairway to heaven, right? Um, Jacob's ladder, where the angels were ascending and descending. And he says, you're going to see. The point is the epicenter of God's activity here on earth centered in me. And this is what you're seeing. And Jesus says, hey, this temple system, this sacrificial system, when I, in my hour, when I'm 
when I die and I'm raised again, it's no longer relevant. In fact, you remember, at the moment Jesus dies, what happens? The veil of the temple is torn into. Two-inch thick curtain of camels will torn in two. And the point is, this system that has become corrupt, this system that is now serving to actually distract people away from the heart of God and connecting uh, with God in prayer and repentance, it's actually distracting. It's done. It's irrelevant now because the new is here. It served its place, but it's the sacrifices were pointing towards the real Passover lamb. So John says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That you don't have to come every year and offer a sacrifice and think, okay, I'm good for a little bit longer and then come back next year. You can have forgiveness once for all. The gospel, grace is better than the law. It's just better. It's new. It's the thing that he's doing. The new is here. The new has come. Are you living in that grace today? You know, here's what I want you to take away from this. Is this, that you can be in proximity to the things of God and still miss him. Remember how we said, like, the distractions of life allow you to be in the proximity with your family, allow you to be in the proximity with your friends and actually never connect Allow you to, you know, connect with church and actually never connect in community. The distractions of life, even religion, even coming and sitting in church. I grew up in church. I've been in church all my life. You can be in proximity to the things of God and never actually know him. You can miss what he wants to do in your life. You can grow up around Christians, grow up in a Christian home, and all it can just all be kind of a, a thing that you feel like adds a good moral value to your life and structure to your life, and you can miss truly having relationship and knowing God. And so for those in the room, some of you, um, you've been, you know, your first memory is um, praying to receive Jesus, but you would admit there's a distraction in your life right now that has been damaging your relationship with him. Maybe, it's, maybe it is technology. Maybe it's an app or two, a couple apps, and you know, I, I need to remove this. Maybe it's um, some people in your life that the influence you need to remove because it's drawing you away from Jesus. You know, there's going to be a moment, we believe this as Christians, when we stand before God and give an account for what we did in our lives. I'm actually very convicted by, by the number of hours, I don't know how it all works, that this was my life, right? Wow. Scrolling, scrolling, scrolling. Now, I'm not saying these tools uh, don't have a place and can't be used. Um, but you know, are they distracting you away from the things God's calling you to get to? Are they doing damage to your soul? Is there an area of life where you've prioritized comfort over his kingdom? where you've become self-focused and self-centered, maybe when it comes to your time or your talent or your treasure. And, and consciously or unconsciously, it's all become about you and about building your little kingdom instead of living for his kingdom. Just something you need to make right there. 
as we sing this song for just a minute or two, um, why don't you confess that to God and commit, hey, I want to take steps towards you. You know, Jim Elliott was uh, a missionary that was carrying the gospel to the Amazon. And there's a quote that has um, haunted me for years. He ended up giving his life at the age of, I, I can't remember, 28 or 29. He knew that was a possibility. But here's the quote that he had about his life and about the way he chose to live his life. He says this, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let me read that again for you. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Living for his kingdom first. Getting rid of some of the distractions so that you can focus on connecting deeper and living your life for him. It is worth it. And you know, the, the point of the signs that Jesus does in here, I'm going to read you one more verse and we're going to close, is this. It says this in verse 23. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. The whole point of John's gospel, he'll tell us at the end, is so that you might believe in Jesus and in him you would find life. Would you stand you know, for some in the room, perhaps um, you've, never, you've never truly embraced what he's done for you. You've never responded in your heart to the gospel. Maybe you're joining us online today, and that's you. As we close, I just want to give you the opportunity to acknowledge who he is and what he's done and embrace the free gift of life that he offers. Some of you might realize I've been in proximity with this this church thing, you know, since I was a kid, but I've never actually embraced Jesus and the, the gospel in my heart. And if that's you, you can just pray a simple prayer like this after me. Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I believe you're the son of God that you died and rose again. I place my trust fully in you and what you did for me. Save me. Forgive me. Welcome me into your kingdom. I want to live my life for you. Let's sing this song for a minute or two, and I'll come back up and pray for you.